The Way Out Podcast, episode 20. In that, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. I was a fat kid. Um, I've since found out that the bullying that I I uh, received was far beyond bullying, <laughs> which I didn't know. I thought it was normal. Apparently not. It was pretty traumatic. Um, so I, I grew up in a really small town in rural Minnesota, and it was really difficult to be different. Um, so... I started drinking and using when I was about 13. I was really young. And literally, like, the second I, I put the bottle to my mouth and felt it, it was, like everybody says, it was exactly what I needed. It was like, oh, I can be funny, and I can be kind of pretty, and I can be, I can be whatever I want. I didn't know that I had a problem, but I knew that I drank more than everybody else. I, I used more. I, it was always more than my friends, more than my sisters. I didn't stop when everybody else was like, you know, the normal person is like, oh, I'm, my stomach is hurting. I'm, I'm not feeling very well. I'm going to stop for the night. I get to that point, and the answer is more, 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 more. Right. Um, so I, I always drank and used drugs harder and faster and more than my friends. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the new official blog of The Way Outcast at www.wayoutcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Way Out Podcast. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on Stitcher and iTunes and following us on Twitter. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Way Out Podcast. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we'll hear from Patricia and her experience, strength, and hope and her journey to recovery. Patricia, welcome to the Way Out Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being bold and brave enough to sign up to do the uh, podcast interview. We both belong to a Facebook group called Sober and Serious. And it's a great group. It's probably one of the more well-attended and active. Yeah, for sure. Facebook uh, sobriety focused groups that I've been involved with, which is uh, amazing. And uh, this is now the 20th episode of The Way Out Podcast. Number 20. So you're on big number 20. And that's kind of a big deal, right? Yeah, totally. I'm very excited and happy. Exactly. So tell The Way Out Podcast listening audience a little bit about yourself 
and who you are, what was uh, growing up like for you, and uh, a little bit about your road to recovery. Okay. Um, so I, I, I always feel like I have kind of a typical story um, in that, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. I was a fat kid. Um, I've since found out that the bullying that I, I uh, received was far beyond bullying, <laughs> which I didn't know. I thought it was normal. Apparently not. It was pretty traumatic. Um, so I, I grew up in a really small town in rural Minnesota, and it was really difficult to be different. Um, so I started drinking and using when I was about 13. I was really young. And literally, like, the second I, I put the bottle to my mouth and felt it, it was, like everybody says, it was exactly what I needed. It was like, oh, I can be funny, and I can be kind of pretty, and I can be, I can be whatever I want. Um, so I think, it, I, I feel like it's a pretty typical start. I feel like a lot of people have that, that feeling of um, loneliness and, and being kind of an outcast and then feeling like they fit in. Um, and that was very much the case for me. Definitely for me, and I can totally relate. I was a fat kid, too. Grow it up. So. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. I would not suspect that right now. <laughs> True story. But I was, and uh, I was tormented uh-huh. in middle school for being uh, overweight. And again, one of the things uh, I've learned about myself, and you said this so eloquently in a meeting that it like damn near knocked me off my chair, is you know most people are born with the two buttons, a more and enough. I never found my enough button, yep. and so cookies. Yep. More. Yep. Anything that Anything. made me feel good. More. more. Yep. I was like that as as a child. It was it was my my escape was food. It was, Definitely. you know, I if I had a bad day, even and I don't blame my parents at all, but you know, Patty's having a hard day, let's give her some ice cream. Okay, mom and dad are gone, I'm gonna eat the rest of the gallon. You know, it was never like a dish of ice cream or a couple of M and M's. It was I have very distinct memories of like mixing M&Ms into a jar of peanut butter and eating the whole thing. So, I mean, it just was a perpetual cycle. And and I've always, I've never, ever had an enough button in anything. Drinking, using, food, even water consumption. I'm like, or coffee. I don't have a cup of coffee. I have five cups of coffee. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it's just the way it is. I'm very much the same way, so I could definitely relate to that. As you're growing up, you uh, discover the magical elixir for us that are of the alcoholic type that is alcohol, and it made you feel like you thought you should feel, Yeah. and it well, it became very quickly the answer. Is very that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, I mean, I remember my first drink. I remember where I was. And it, even though it was a slightly scary situation, like the the way it went down and and where I was and stuff ended up being kind of a scary situation. The next day, I wanted to do it again. It was like, okay, that was scary and that was horrifying, but at the same time, I want to do that again. Like, I mean, right off the get go, and it it just didn't stop. Um, I can definitely relate to that one. The first time I got drunk, I blacked out and 
And they stuck me in a dog kennel because I was so obnoxious and I kept oh wanting God. more and I kept wanting more. And so they stuck me in a dog kennel. Well, uh, I had stopped breathing. Holy shit. And they had no idea how long I had stopped breathing, but I had a bunch of drunk people pounding on my chest trying to get me mm-hmm. to start to breathe again. Miraculously, I did. And then they fed me a bottle of syrup of Ipecac. <laughs> and I threw up for 12 hours straight oh in the garage. God. And despite all of that, exactly, it's I like, wanted the first thing I thought of, let's do this again. Yeah. Where can we get more of that? Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, that w- that should have raised an alarm bell very early. And that was, at, that was at 15 years old. And for most people, it does. Most people are like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. And they don't right. drink until their 21st birthday or something. <laughs> right, like, right. We it are was a not... very traumatic experience yeah. for them or whatever. I knew people that witnessed me that didn't drink for mm-hmm. a long time just because they saw what happened to exactly. me. Exactly. Not this guy. We're just wired so differently. I mean, I really believe that. I really believe that our brains are different long before we pick up, I, I think. I agree. Um, that we are just wired completely different. I think that we have all have buttons for certain things and uh, switches, uh, genetic switches mm-hmm. that get turned on. And it doesn't take, you know, my addiction switch was, you know, enormous. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take much of anything to get that thing turned yep. on and stuck on. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, there was no turning it off. No, no, <laughs> like, no, 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 we'll no. just hold no, that there. Nope, yeah, that got stuck in the on position for quite some time. There's yeah. no doubt about that. So you, it very quickly became the answer. For me, it was fun for yep. a long time. I didn't view it as a problem despite consequences. Yep. Did you, is, does that resonate with you as well? I honestly, I knew right off the get-go um, that I... I knew I didn't know that I had a problem, but I knew that I drank more than everybody else. I I used more. I it was always more than my friends, more than my sisters. I didn't stop when everybody else was like, you know, the normal person is like, oh, I'm my stomach is hurting. I'm I'm not feeling very well. I'm gonna stop for the night. I get to that point, and the answer is more, 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 more. Right. Um. So. I, I always drank and used drugs harder and faster and more than my friends, you know. Um, I got into drugs pretty heavily in my teens and into my early 20s. Um, but at some point, alcohol just kind of became the thing. It was just, it was always there. It was socially acceptable. Um, you know, I kind of got away from the drug crowd when I moved to Florida. Um, it was just a drinking crowd. Um but again, it was, you know, I would have, I would have, I was, I was the life of the party, right? I was Absolutely. like the social butterfly, like had tons of friends, always had parties, but I always ended up, you know, doing something stupid. You know, I always went over the top with it. It was never like, oh, okay, goodbye, everybody. I'm kind of buzzed. Good night. It was, what? Everybody's leaving? Yeah. I'm still <laughs> going, you know? Yep. Pussies. Yeah. It was never. And so for me, um, I would say that I would say that if I had to kind of define a time when it started to become a problem at the time, I didn't realize it. Um, It was about five years ago was when uh, maybe six, five or six years ago. um, It was after I had gotten married. Um, Our relationship wasn't good. It was kind of a fix it marriage. Um, And we used together, we drank together 
constantly. I mean, even my sisters would be like, God, do, you, do all you and Michael do is drink? And I was like, yep, that's what we <laughs> that's do. That's kind of what we do, yeah. Um, and I surrounded myself with people who drank like me, too. And if I couldn't find people like me, um, I just would drink alone. I mean, I that's when I really started drinking alone a lot. Um, but honestly and truly... Even with all the consequences that I had, I mean, I attempted suicide three times in a year and a half. Um, detox so many times. I have been to jail. Even with all those consequences, it never clicked for me that that, that was the problem. Everything else in my life was the problem. Like, my mental health was the problem. The people around me are the problem. My dad is the problem. It's, it was everything. It never, ever dawned on me that, like, I have a drinking problem and that's what's causing all of this. I, I, I don't know if it was just denial or, I mean, and the only time anyone ever said anything to me was my mom would occasionally be like, you know, Patricia, alcoholism runs in our family. And it was more of a ha-ha, mom. Right. Um, because, I, you know, I drank heavily with my sisters. Um, my parents don't drink, but, I mean, my cousins, I mean, everybody I know drinks and so for me it was I just nobody ever brought it up you know nobody ever said hey there's this is a problem um until the very end you know one of the things that occurs to me as I started to get a little bit older and got into more probably into my late 20s and early 30s I was married at the time had young kids and it became less acceptable to constantly party all the time. Right. I had a regular job. I had things that I had to do. So it became a Jekyll and Hyde type of situation. Yes. Absolutely. At some point. Absolutely. <laughs> you can identify with yeah, that, it sounds absolutely. like. Absolutely. Um, I was very, like, I tried to do the whole put, to, like, put together. I'm a chef. I, you know, I work these crazy hours and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, you know, I'm doing the deal. Um, but I mean, Nobody knew. I don't think anyone really knew the level that I was at. They didn't know that I had a flask at work. They didn't know that I drank in the morning before I went to work. They didn't know that I started drinking the second I got off and drank until I passed out. Um, nobody knew. And I, I was very much like, we just won't tell anyone this. Exactly. Like, everybody knows I drink, but they don't know how much I drink. Um, <clears throat> and I was good at faking it. Like... We're professionals yeah. at that stuff. I was I mean, really we good. are professionals. Yep. Professionals. And there were definitely times when I would be like, okay, to prove to myself that I cannot drink, I'm going to not drink for the week. And I would reward myself with like a massive binge and for a month. You know, it's like, oh, I took a week off drinking. I'm going to drink for the next month straight and vomit blood every day. Cool. <laughs> I can totally identify with that. It's, it's interesting. When I got divorced from my first marriage, I would be super dad mm -hmm. when I had the kids, pat myself on the back that I had somehow managed either not to drink or not to drink every day mm -hmm. and keep it in check. Mm -hmm. And by the time they went back to their moms, I needed to really celebrate right. that victory right. with a... I'm the best dad that's ever. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's correct. And I'd go on a bender. Mm -hmm. I didn't put that together at mm -mm. the time that 
I that it was out of control. Yep. And that that's not normal. <laughs> like Exactly. No, normal and people as, don't do that. As long as nobody, nobody knew. And there were times where I'd come back from a bender or a blackout, and I wouldn't know where my car was, and I wouldn't know how I got home. Mm-hmm. And that panic and fear that sets in. Yep. Fleeting moments of clarity would hit. Like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, mm-hmm. this is a problem. Mm-hmm. This isn't normal. Yep. But as long as I don't let anybody know that it happened. Exactly. Then it kind of didn't. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Didn't matter. Yep. I could keep that to myself. And yep. it did yep. for a long time. Yep. But the problem was, as that persisted, it became harder and harder to live with myself mm-hmm. and look people in the eyes mm-hmm. because I knew who I was. Yeah. I knew how, how I acted. Yeah. I knew what was inside of me that I was trying to keep from everybody else, yeah. but nobody else knew that became painful for yeah. me. Yeah. It was really hard. Um, so the other part of my bottom is something that's pretty, it's personal, but it's part of my story and I do share it. Um, I didn't for a long time. Um, and I think it's important, especially for women out there to hear it. Um, so a few years after we were married, um, we decided to separate. Um, we just weren't getting along. Um, I honestly believe it was because we're both working like crazy and both drinking like crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, we were a wreck. So we decided to separate. Um, I started very casually dating someone, um, Ended up at um, a bar getting completely shit-tanked with him and some friends um, and ended up being pretty brutally um, sexually assaulted. Um, That, I don't tell people that to make them pity me. I tell people that because that was a really significant part of my very sharp it was like I was headed down bottom. I was like, I was on the way. I'd been to detox. I'd been in the hospital for suicide attempts. Um, that was like getting to like the edge and suddenly just dropping off. Um, I, it completely pushed me off of whatever edge I had left um, that particular incident. Um, so I spent the next year, for about three months, I was, I, I was pretty um, disattached from reality. Um, You know, my family was kind of babysitting me. Um, I had no concept of what was going on. All I knew was that I couldn't sleep um, and that I had to be drunk round the clock. Um, Took a leave of absence from work. Um, And that was was the beginning of the end, I believe, for me. That was in 2014. Um, So it was two years, um, well, about a year um, of a really, really significant turn down to hell, basically. Like oblivion. Yeah, oblivion. Um, At that point, um, I did move out, um, got my own apartment, and I was completely out of control, putting myself in incredibly dangerous situations. Um, I was in in self-destruct mode. Um, absolutely. I mean, jobs were, I was barely able to keep them. If, if I couldn't keep them, I would lose them. Um, 
it, I, I remember very little from that year. Um, we as alcoholics and addicts have such a hard time dealing with life on life's terms yeah. when life is within the range of what I would call normal, whatever that might mm-hmm. mean. And mm-hmm. I know that's such a goofy term. Mm-hmm. But when there is profound trauma yeah. that is that can really, really uh, send uh, you and I yep. into a complete tailspin. Yep. And especially when we're already suffering with mental illness. You know, I was, I was already, I've been dealing with depression and anxiety mm-hmm. since I was a child, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that was, it was like tailspin of downward spiral, just mentally gone. You bring up such a, an, a salient point because the comorbidity of addiction and alcoholism with mental illness is extremely high. Mm-hmm. It's extremely Absolutely. Common. It's extremely. You know, they say that there's no exact connection. There's no scientific connection. But the the percentage of, of people who deal with addiction very, very high mental health um, issue rate. I mean, it's, and I think there, there's got to be some connection there. There just has to be. Um, but I also think that if you look at us, I mean, so many of the people that I've met in the program, we have had traumatic lives and sad Absolutely. lives. I mean, how do you not suffer, you know, with mental illness as a result of all the things that we've been through? And I'm not trying to victimize us or anything like that, but typically speaking, We've had some shit in our lives. It's pretty common. Yeah. It's pretty common. And trauma is pretty common. Uh, my mom died when I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And certainly I think that had a pretty profound effect on me and definitely put me in a place where drugs and alcohol became the answer probably much quicker. Right. I, I think I have no doubt that I would have become an alcoholic. Right. No matter what. But there are those, those instances that push us, I think, a little bit easier, a little bit Absolutely. harder, a little bit faster than maybe we would normally Bingo. get there. And I think, yeah, it's like put, putting gasoline in a fire. Yep. Really. You know, ultimately, I feel like I would have been there anyway in some way, shape, or form. Yep. Absolutely. But that trauma, just, it, just you so eloquently put, absolutely putting gasoline mm-hmm. and accelerant on yep. an already pretty blazing fire. Yep. Absolutely. How did you get that fire under control? You're dealing with emotions that most people would never dream of having to deal with. You, you're probably at some point both hating the person who perpetrated this vile act, but also wondering what part you played Absolutely. in it. Absolutely. I had and, a really and, hard time with that. And I can't even begin to imagine obviously I have a penis and so I can't even begin to imagine what that what that was like um I think it was particularly hard because I knew him like I was seeing him Mm -hmm. um so that was a that was it was a really difficult situation um I did end up uh after the fact going to a hot to the hospital and was there um with some injuries and, you know, did the rape kit and stuff like that. But like I said, I mean, I, I really had a break with reality. And then I just said, I'm not thinking about this. Like after I got my own apartment in my head, I was like, if I just don't think about this, it didn't didn't happen. happen. Well, the only way to not think about this 
is to be as drunk as I possibly can be all the time. Um, I definitely suffered with pretty severe PTSD, though at that time I kind of was in denial. I was like, I don't have PTSD. I just don't think about this. It's fine. I'm fine. Go, 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 go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so honestly, I that year, um, that fall, so it was fall of 2015. Um, it was October 20, around, around the 25th, I would say. Um, a few days before my birthday, um, I had gotten really drunk and basically was texting and calling my family and friends saying goodbye. I'm not doing this anymore. I love you all, but I'm done. Um, I was kind of intervened basically. Um, and, in a drunken fugue state, um, admitted that I needed help. Um, and that's when I ended up going in for a chemical dependent dependency assessment and getting a bed at the Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation. Um, there was no, there was nothing beforehand. There was no, you know, again, no AA. There was, I mean, I had no concept of recovery ever in my life. I knew that my uncle was an alcoholic and he went to meetings like Sandra Bullock. Um, right. And <laughs> 28 days later. You right. Know. Um, so I ended up <clears throat> uh, going to Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation the first time um, on October 27th, um, 2015. That was the day after my birthday. And that was the start of my road to recovery. We'll be right back with part two of Patricia's interview as we bring you another presentation of Recovery Revealed. And this week, we focus on the chief character defect that exists within countless addicts and alcoholics. And to be sure, I am no exception to the rule. The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous characterizes selfishness and self-centeredness as the center of our troubles. And I quote, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some point in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. The book goes on to reveal that this obsession with self must be eliminated if we are to achieve meaningful and enduring recovery. What? Most of us are likely to initially rebuke this notion, believing the world and the people in it likely has done us wrong. Yes, we were the victims. I certainly did not believe that I was a selfish or self-centered person while in my active addiction and alcoholism, though I certainly was accused of such entirely more frequently than I would have preferred. Notably, those whom I had close relationships with romantic or otherwise, invariably accused me of being a selfish SOB, which I disregarded out of hand. Rather, I was sure they were the selfish ones and not I. That's when the miracle and beauty of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous became apparent once again in my early recovery. The more I sat in the rooms and listened to those whom were like me, the more I realized the selfishness they spoke of was a selfishness I identified and saw within myself. The more my sponsor spoke of the ways in which self-centeredness dominated his life, 
the better I understood my own self-centeredness. The more I began to apply the third step in my daily life, the more I realized how truly selfish I had become throughout my active addiction and alcoholism. Indeed, step three provided the way out, pun very much intended, of my obsession with self. Much to my delight as I applied step three to my daily recovery discipline, it was a truly wonderful feeling to finally find a way to get out of myself in a way that wasn't poison to my soul. Quite to the contrary, when I started to attempt to embody the third step prayer, I finally started to feel some much needed and long overdue relief from the bondage of self. My mission became, and still very much is to this day, to be of maximum service to the God of my understanding and those whom I touch on a daily basis. I share this not because I feel as though I am any sort of model citizen of the AA society, rather that these basic principles actually worked for me in a way that I could never have predicted before entering recovery just a short two years ago. It does indeed work, as they say, if you work it. Now back to part two of our interview with Patricia. So I spent a week there begging my mother to come get me. Someone, anyone, come get me. Like, I'm in Center City. I have no way of leaving. Um, finally, with the powers of manipulation, I ended up getting this guy that I had been casually dating for about three months, um, who is a very dear friend and um, has been a huge part of my recovery, um, to come get me. I was like, I don't belong here. I'm going to check into a psych ward and it's going to be fine. So just come get me. My mom told me that if I left, um, that they kind of washed their hands of me. Um, you know, they, she said, I, we can't watch you do this anymore. I was super drunk. It was like eight in the morning. I had been drinking all night. Um, and I looked around my apartment and I looked at me alone and sad. And um, I picked up the phone and I drunkenly called my counselor. <laughs> at Hazelden and literally slurred. I was like, I'm so sorry that I left and that I was mean. Can I come back? And she was like, yeah, come back. Tell me about that experience for you when you enter into recovery after, you know, and I think we all have bottoms and our bottom is when we stop digging because yeah. there's more bottoms out there for me. Um, if I'm willing to let me let myself go there, but you had your bottom and you had this moment of surrender where you were able to reach out for help. I call that my gift of desperation. I received that gift of desperation and was willing for whatever reason to accept help. So my actually gift of desperation came a week later. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I went to Hazelden. Um, I was absolutely in hysterics. I was could not stop crying. And I got there, and I spent a week there, and I was in sheer denial. I would say things like when we went around the room, um, I'd say, I'm Patricia. They'd tell me I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> um <laughs> I would talk to the women and be like, you're really amazing, wonderful people. I don't belong here. I just have mental health issues. <laughs> this isn't, this isn't, this isn't where, where I am. Um, 
So I spent a week there begging my mother to come get me. Someone, anyone, come get me. Like, I'm in Center City. I have no way of leaving. Um, finally, with the powers of manipulation, I ended up getting this guy that I had been casually dating for about three months, um, who is a very dear friend and um, has been a huge part of my recovery, um, to come get me. I was like, I don't belong here. I'm going to check into a psych ward, and it's going to be fine. So just come get me. My mom told me that if I left, um, that they kind of washed their hands of me. Um, you know, they, she said, I, we can't watch you do this anymore. Um, so I left uh, and went on a 48-hour bender. As soon as I got home, I hit the liquor store. Um, it was not my that's long... that's the cure. Yes. We know what works, right? Like, we know what works. Mm-hmm. So I, it definitely was not my longest bender, but one of my most severe, for sure. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what happened, but on the morning of the second day, um, I was super drunk. It was like eight in the morning. I had been drinking all night. Um, and I looked around my apartment and I looked at me alone and sad and, um, I picked up the phone and I drunkenly called my counselor at Hazelden and literally slurred. I was like, I'm so sorry that I left <laughs> and that I was mean. Can I come back? And she was like, yeah, come back. <laughs> so my sober date <clears throat> and my the, the moment when I really received the gift of desperation um, is November 4th of 2015. And that's when I went back to Hazelden. And when I went back... Which means, everybody, Patricia just celebrated one year... ...of continuous <laughs> sobriety. Crazy. Which we don't do. No. That's not how we operate. No. That is absolutely fucking amazing. <laughs> First time in the program. Hopefully the last. Um... So, but when I was driving there, all I could think of, um, you know, it was fall, it was beautiful outside, and all I could think about was, Patricia, if you do this, if you go back here, you got to do whatever they want you to do. Like, you can't do it your way. You can't leave. You can't say, no, I'm not doing that. You have to accept this. I mean, it was, it was like this moment of full surrender for me. And that's why I like the word surrender in step one. We admitted we were, uh, uh, we we admitted that we were alcoholics and that yeah. our lives had become unmanageable. You know, admitted never did, did anything for me. Right. You know, I admitted at times during meetings when I was uh, younger and in the program, and I very much echo your first uh, your first little stint that first week in Hazelden. Like these meetings are really cute for you people, mm-hmm. and I'm. Just super glad you have them. Right. Because clearly you need them. Yep. You're great people. Yeah. You need help. Yep. And you all need them. And I'm glad this place is here for you. Right. For me, though, I'm different. Yep. I'm different. Terminal uniqueness. Correct. We all have it. That's correct. It, th- this isn't going to fix me. <laughs> no. Uh, first of all, I'm far too complex. Right. I'm I am. <laughs> and I, nobody will understand me. I am different. Right. Yep. Correct. And I had that terminal uniqueness during my active addiction and alcoholism. And I remember distinctly thoughts coming into my mind 
if you only knew. Yeah. If you only knew what it was like to be me. Yeah. If you only knew what it was like to live in my skin. Yeah. You didn't go through this. You didn't go through that. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. Correct. So no one can. So because I've I've had these experiences and you haven't, you can't possibly relate to me. Correct. And I, you know, and I've so since come to realize that like we've all been through different scenarios and it doesn't matter if they're not the same what matters is that we all went on a pretty bumpy road to get from point A to point B, and we're all at point B now. And so in that, I find a lot of solace and a lot of, a lot of uh, fellowship and community. I can really, I can go and sit with a bunch of drunks and know that, like, even though they didn't have the exact same experiences as me, they all went through some shit we all went through some shit and we're all here to get better. And to me, that's amazing. When I lived such a lonely life for a long time in this Jekyll and Hyde situation and felt like nobody really understood me, nobody really ever, even from early on as a child, I felt like that, that nobody really got me and nobody really understood me. And I felt different and I felt mm-hmm. apart from, constantly felt apart from mm-hmm. Even at earlier attempts at recovery, I, of course, I didn't feel like I was a part of them. Mm-hmm. When I got that gift of desperation and I truly surrendered, I felt like I was coming home when I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. And that feeling I've never been able to duplicate in any other aspect of no. my life. And it's so special mm-hmm. to me that I can sit down with people that I've never met before. And within 10 minutes, we have a bond that I can not duplicate in any other aspect of my life. Yep. Absolutely. So yeah, I went back. Um, I did not spend 28 days, um, at Hazelden. I spent 90. Um, (laughs) some are some are sicker than others patricia i was i was so mad too i was like wait you want me to go to lily i'm doing i came back i'm doing really good are you serious like i have to stay here for two more months i was so confused but i did it i was like i don't want to do this i mean and and in that process i mean you don't all, all, you don't only lose things, you know, in active addiction. I lost my apartment when I was in recovery. Indeed. I lost my job. You know, I, I lost a lot. But it was everything that I lost, I've gained back tenfold, and it was absolutely worth it. I mean, Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation saved my life. Um and I was really blessed to be able to go to Hazelden. I know it's someplace that a lot of people can't go to. I had really good kind of residual insurance. And when my insurance cut out, um, you know, people talk a lot of shit about Hazelden. My insurance cut out and I had to pay Cobra. I said, I can't, I can't afford to pay Cobra, Hazelden. What, you know, I have to leave. Hazelden paid my Cobra so that I could stay there. Um, so to me, that says, speaks volumes about that facility and that, 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 treatment center. I mean, they, they knew that I wanted to stay there and that I was willing to. And so they said, we're going to help you stay here. Um, 
So yeah, it was. I'm also a Hazelden alum, and I, like you said, I know that not everybody can afford it. And I also lost things in recovery, so I get that. I lost a marriage in recovery mm-hmm. really early on, and that's sort of those things. When you lose those things, and those are those are that that can cut two ways. And for me, it just made me even more dependent on this concept of a higher power. Yeah. Because I really had nothing. Yeah. And so really. It, it forced me instead of back to drinking. It forced me to really embrace the program mm-hmm. in a way that I'd never embraced it before. And it mm-hmm. really paid dividends for me. I had a hard time. I don't know about you, but I, I got there and I was like, okay, so you're going to do this. And I was like, all I could see were the words fellowship and God. And I was like, well, I don't like people. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> so there's that. And I don't believe in God. <laughs> right. I'm never going to be sober. I'm doomed. Like this, I'm doomed. Fuck. <laughs> um, so it, the I had, I, it's good that I stayed there as long as I did because I had to really wrap my head around things. Like a higher power was incredibly difficult for me. Um I didn't realize how little I believed in anymore until I had to think about what I believed in. Um, And I remember being so sad because it was just empty. It was like, what's your higher power? And I was like, there's nothing. There's nothing there. There's There's no anything. And I remember being really sad about that and being like, I'm doomed. I mean, I'm doomed. Doomed. Doomed, doomed, doomed. Um... But and it took me a long time. I I um I had a great counselor in primary who gave me a book called One Breath at a Time, um, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, and because I I had had a past um, my first marriage. <laughs> my you, got, you ain't got nothing on me, Patricia. You ain't got nothing on me. <laughs> um, was we were married in a Tibetan Buddhist temple, and he was very heavily heavy into Buddhism, and I I loved the concept of it. Um. I love the concept of compassion um, being such a huge part of my life. Um, so that book was amazing. It really helped me correlate the steps um, to Buddhism, and in in that, and it and it helped me wrap my head around. You know, for me, I'm I don't identify as Christian. Um, I was raised Catholic. Um, it never resonated with me. Um, I too am a recovering Catholic. Right. <laughs> um. It, it, you know, to each their own, and I think everyone has a different higher power. For me, um, it, it was not of a Christian, um, you know, based value or value system or ideal system. So, um, it ra- starting to wrap my head around I'm not the biggest thing in the universe was huge. Like, and I did a lot of research. I talked to a lot of agnostics, a lot of atheists. Um, and really, really did did my homework on on what I wanted my higher power to be, and it's evolved. Like it, it wasn't like, oh, I believe in this now, and it's all good. Um, it was a very big evolution for me. Um, and that's that step to come to believe. Yeah, that a power greater than ourselves, and really, we have this can't can't use, can't drink, can't stop paradigm right before 
we get this gift of desperation. We don't know what we're going to do, but we, we know that we're powerless yeah. over this thing. It's got us. It's, I, I'm powerless. Yeah. I, I, I surrender. I don't know what I'm going to do, yeah. but I'm absolutely powerless. Then, you know, working through the steps, we have to find a power that's greater than ourselves. It's not alcohol anymore. It's not sex. It's not food. It's yep. not any of that, right? So we have to find this power. And so that's a beautiful way for you yep. to embark on that step two yep. slash step three journey. Yeah. And it's, I mean, step two and three, I was pretty much on until I was like five months sober. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't really start working on anything for a long time because it took me so long to really wrap my head around the next two steps. Um, and that was very treatment-based. Um, it was getting my head around, you know, a power greater than myself. Um, it was a lot of intense therapy. Um, I actually, I ended up dealing with the trauma that um, had occurred. I did, I initially was like, no, no, I'm not here to talk about that. Right. Um, but eventually they convinced me to do um, a type of therapy called EMDR. And it was amazing. It. I didn't know how much I had suffered from PTSD until it was gone. Um, it was amazing. Um, so I did a lot of work on myself in Hazelden, um, getting healthy, um, mentally, spiritually, even physically. Um, I spent a lot of time really developing amazing friendships. <clears throat> uh, my roommate, Bree, <clears throat> I actually met in Lily. Um, we were in Lily together for two months, and she rocks the program like a boss, and I can't imagine living with someone better um, and, and someone who, who has grown exponentially. I mean, I can't even believe it. So the, the three months that I was in Hazelin, it was, it was a lot of wrapping my head around the fact that I have a problem. Lecture was, like, huge for me. Um, lecture was my favorite part of Hazelden. It was like, okay, I get what you're saying. There's these steps and like, there's all the like clinical stuff, but like the lectures helped me like connect it to real life. Like these are real people that like went through the same stuff I went through and look at where they came out. So I, I found a lot of my personal gain and growth, um, through lecture Um, just listening to people. I needed to listen over and over and over again so that I could understand that I am not different. I am not alone. I'm just like them, and it's okay. And there's hope. And there's hope. I mean, the hope. Those people brought me hope. Yep, yep. Absolutely. It was like because wait, they've been sh- there, right? Yeah. In the in they they or they've been to places that I haven't been. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they recovered. Yep. And they've gotten a measure of peace and serenity and yeah. joy yeah. in their lives through the working of the steps. Yeah. And everything, everybody echoed, and Hazelden does an amazing job of saying you'll get sober in treatment, but you'll stay sober in, in recovery. In recovery. Yeah, absolutely. They hammer that home. Yeah. And it is absolutely 100% correct. Absolutely. Sure. What a gift for you to be able to come out of this with such a tremendous friendship and relationship and be able to live with uh, a fellow in recovery. What awesome. a gift. Super awesome. So I got out of Hazelin January 26th. Um, 
And I did five weeks of um, of outpatient, which I hated, but I did it. <laughs> and I was like, I am not relating to this. I don't understand what's happening. This is nothing like Hazelin, but I did it every single day because that's what I was told to do. I, I have held on to do whatever you're supposed to do no matter what. I don't care if I don't want to go to a meeting. I'm going to a meeting. I don't care if I don't want to go to day treatment. I'm going to day treatment. I'm also really stubborn, and for the first time in my life, it's benefiting me. The Any length. Mm-hmm. Go to any length. Any length. Or that's the reality of it. You have to be willing to. Um, I had a terrible sponsorship experience. Do you want to hear about that? I do. I do. As a, as a, as a new sponsor... So, yes, I absolutely do want to hear about a, a traumatic. It's awful. And I feel like it's important to tell people this because sometimes it sucks finding a sponsor. Absolutely. Sometimes. Most of the time it sucks. Like, it's we already... have to ask for help and we have to approach somebody and we have yeah. to you know, be vulnerable and all it's... these things that we don't like to do. Yeah. Um, so I got out of Hazelden and um, I was living with actually the guy that the, the, the guy that t- took me to and from Hazelin because I didn't have anywhere to go. I lost my apartment, so I'm living with, with him, and um, he's a pot smoker. Um, but, you know, whatever, I, that wasn't my DOC. So um, it was, I, he was gracious enough to let me stay there. Um, so I'm, you know, he's encouraging me. I'm working my program and stuff. Um, I spent a lot of time with um, specifically a woman that I had gotten out of Hazelden with a day apart and she'd been in the program in and out of the program for um, a couple of years so she took me to a lot of meetings um finally I went to a meeting and it was like okay you really gotta find a sponsor like you just gotta this woman spoke at the meeting she raised her hand during the raise your hand part for sponsorship I walk up to her after (laughs) the meeting like hi will you you be my temporary sponsor she was like, eh, no. Whoa. And I was like, what? <laughs> wow. Why'd you raise your fucking hand? <laughs> she was like, I'm going to Europe. I don't know why I raised my hand, blah, blah. And I was traumatized. I was like, well, I'm never doing that again. Exactly. Rejection. Yes. We handle rejection so well, yeah. don't we? So then I just started casually, i.e. not casually, mentioning every time I shared at a meeting and I still don't have a sponsor. <laughs> Way to advocate for yourself. That's great, though. <laughs> so then, because even that's taking a risk, right? right? To say that, you know, and I still don't have a sponsor and I need one. And someone heard me. Um, this woman approached me um, and I worked with her for about two months. In that time, I saw her once. She did not have time for me. So I dumped her via text because um, I was like, just resentful. I was like, okay. It's not you, it's me. Actually, you know what? Yeah. It is you. It is you. Ah! So I dumped her, um, and I remembered a woman that had given me her phone number, like, that my second day out of Hazelden um, at the Uptown House, um, and I texted her, and I was like, "Are you still spo- are you sponsoring women?" And she agreed to meet me, um, and she's been my sponsor ever since. And sh- it was like I had to go through those other two situations to find the exactly the right sponsor for me. Um, She's exactly what I need. She has what I want. She has six years of uninterrupted sorority. This is her first time in the program. Um, to me, that I, that's what I want. Um, 
she is not my friend. Um, we don't hang out. We don't, you know, she's my sponsor. She is my Obi-Wan. I am Luke. Um, (laughs) (laughs) she works, we worked the steps. Um, she took me through the steps. The first 164 pages of the big book. Um, I text her. Wait, say that again. How did you work the steps? I worked the steps. Through the first? 164 pages. God bless you. Of the big book. God bless you. You know, that can be a novel concept in sponsorship and in working the steps. Yep, yep. And And I know that there's a lot of creative ways to work the steps, but the only way that I got better is is when I got a sponsor that took me through the first 164 pages of that big book. Yep, the big book is huge. And and it was hard for me to wrap my head around because it was like, this is boring and flowery (laughs) and blah. Blah, blah, blah. Now that I'm through it, I'm like, the big book saved my life. Like, these old motherfuckers yep. saved my life. Absolutely. <laughs> like, they're dead, and I they're love de- them. And Bill's like my dog. Right? You know, like, he is, like, uh, I, I relate to him on so many different levels, and uh, the, uh, the spiritual wisdom that exists yeah. within that first 164 pages mm-hmm. is probably not duplicated in the same way to the same effect yep. for me personally than any other spiritual literature that i've ever read it's a it's it's Um, profound we the agnostics for me it was just like mind-blowing it was like this is what i needed to hear like um so yeah i have an amazing sponsor she's not warm and cuddly she's not one of those nazi sponsors but she is she does she tells me things that i don't want to hear a lot um, I remember specifically at one point I was like five months sober and I was upset about something and I was like, and I'm going to bring it up to the steering board because I think blah, blah, blah. And she was like, she basically said, shut the fuck up. She was like, <laughs> you know, in your first year of sobriety, it's really important to keep your ears open and keep your opinions to yourself. And it was harsh. I was like, damn, uh, best advice I could have ever gotten. Fantastic. I shut my mouth. And open my ears, and that was huge for me. So, um, I, you know, I, I when I just started sponsoring, um, I'm pretty nervous about it because um, I feel so new, still. But um, I, I've decided that I definitely want to mimic what she does with me. I mean, I want to do everything that that my sponsor does because it's worked for me. And the great thing is. Because I have a relationship with my sponsor and you have a relationship. We can lean on our sponsor when we're sponsoring. Yep, absolutely. Which is so cool. It's so cool. It's like, it, it's, it's, it's like weird sponsor family time. It really is. Know. You know, I have a great, I have a, I have a sponsor and I have a grand sponsor. And yeah. I have a, you know, th- that stuff is really cool. Yep. I went to, to, I had, I made brunch for just recently for my sponsor, her sponsor, her sponsor's other sponsee and my sponsor's other sponsee. So it was like sponsor brunch. And it was so awesome. It was just like this table full of like women with wisdom. It was like, hell yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's so important, especially I think for women in recovery, because if you walk into any room of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, there's a ratio there. Okay. And it's very clear statistically that women recover at lower rates than men do. Yep. And I don't know why that is. I and, know. you know, I'm not going to pretend I understand that, but nope. I do know 
that when I meet women in recovery that are working a good program, it is so amazing. And I, it's just one of those things that I, I just, I, I celebrate that yeah, in absolutely. my heart because it's There's some so of the needed. strongest women I've ever met are the women that are working their programs well. I go to detox with a woman who just got five years sober. Um, she's amazing. My sponsor's amazing. I really look for women. I don't have, um, you know, I don't, I never really got the whole fellowship thing for me personally. I just never truly clicked. Um, I do have a hard time with social anxiety and stuff like that, especially in sobriety. I didn't before when I was drunk. I was fine. I know. I'm amazing. I'm the bomb. Um, but I, the, the, the women that I do have in my life, um, you know, I have I have a couple of really close friends, my roommate and another woman who it, they're inspirational to me. Um, you know, I have a friend, my my dearest friend in recovery um, has 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 really struggled, um, but I admire her tenacity and she keeps coming back like she does not give up. And I, I think she's amazing. I learn. I learn so much from her and her struggle and her program um, every day. <clears throat> um, and so, so yeah, I mean, this year has been amazing. I mean... One of the things that you said earlier on that you really worked on yourself in a co- on a couple of different fronts. First, you worked on sobriety. You harnessed that gift of desperation, and you were able to start working toward recovery the other thing that you said is that you started working on the trauma Mm -hmm. and the ptsd it really resonated with me because i definitely did the same thing hazelden's great about that yep and so i did do that through hazelden Mm -hmm. which is nice to have that recovery bend to the therapy and i went through the emdr as well yeah amazing it's mind-blowing it's just like what like yeah i had no idea that i could not be and feel insane all the time. This is great. <laughs> and it clears your head up so much so that you can focus on other things. It really does do that because I think one of the things I have a hard time with is those things called feelings. Yeah, the feels. The feels. I hate the feels. I didn't even have a good, good way of identifying when a feeling would start to surface what that feeling was. Right. All I knew is it felt icky. Yeah. And I wanted it to go away. Yeah. And my first response was to push that bastard yep. right back down as far as I could yep. because they scared me. Yeah. Because when they did come up, that was a trigger for me. Absolutely. I want to drink Bingo. now. Bing. Yep. So I would push it down as much as I could. So to have tools. Yep. To be able to cope with those feelings yep. when they and arrive. It, and it doesn't all go away. Like, Mm-mm. you know, it's like sometimes I think that we forget about um, the, the early times when I was talking to my sponsee two nights ago and everything she was saying, I was like, God, I remember that. You know, the feeling of, uh, she said, somebody asked me what I like to do and I don't know what I like to do. And I don't, I don't know who I am right now. And I remember that feeling so vividly and she took me right back to where I needed to remember to be because we can't forget where that you know like that that's so important to remember how lost we were 
and it was so great to 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 relate to that and to be able to tell her I relate and I understand everything you're saying and I am here to tell you that you have no idea how amazing life is going to be if you do this you know what I mean isn't that amazing like, that that to connect with that utter loneliness despair being completely lost and to sit with somebody that's going through that and say it gets better it does i was there too yep. and it gets better and it's hard to hear i know that she was i know i'm sure that in her head she was like yeah right you're just saying exactly because i was like that too yep but it's like God, you just gotta keep trying. You just gotta keep trying, please. It gets it gets better. better. And it's not always perfect. I mean, I had I had a hard time, you know, getting out of Hazelden and getting out of the bubble was terrifying. It was like, and I live across the street from a bar. Shit. Right. Um, yeah, real real world. Real world stuff. Um, I remember at one point I was having a bad day and I ended up outside a, a liquor store. Um and I said, okay, Patricia, you're going to go to a meeting. And if you still feel like drinking after the meeting, you can come back to this, this liquor store. I made a deal with myself, and I was serious. I have never felt the power of the group, the group of drunks, the God. Absolutely. Um, as I did that day. It was amazing. It was like it just washed over me and washed those heavy, intense cravings away. And I went home and I didn't drink. And I do that. I do that now. Like, I use the tools that I that I got in Hazelden when I'm having a bad day. I reach out to people. Like I said, I don't have a huge sober network, but I have people I can call. I have people I can trust. I mean, I, I do everything that they say I should do still. You know, stick with the winners. Okay, I'm going to stick with the winners. I'm going to be around the people who are doing the deal. You know, th they say, you know, get a sponsor. I got a sponsor. I mean, you, you, you just got to not do what you want to do, basically. Basically. Because what you want to do is going to get, well, at least for me, it's going to get me nowhere but trouble and backwards. And and this year has been so amazing. I was, I was like, I was speaking at a meeting on Sunday, and I was talking about this year. And it's like, um, I had a really hard time the week before I got my medallion. I was really, my brain was really, I was suffering from PMS, pre-medallion syndrome. <laughs> um, and my brain was telling me some crazy shit. I mean, my brain was like, it's been a year. Maybe you're special. You just need to take a year off drinking and maybe you can just drink now. And, it, and I had to combat those thoughts with, you know, no, do you remember how many times you've been to detox? You haven't been to detox once this year. You remember attempting suicide and ending up in hospitals? You know, all those hospital bills that you have that you still have to deal with, the financial wreckage thing? Right, right. <laughs> um, you step, haven't step been nine, yeah. to the hospital at all this year. Um, and and what I really realized was um, that, that when I'm at my best in the program and when I'm at my happiest – is when I'm I'm doing the deal, which which for me doesn't mean just going to meetings. It means going to meetings, working with my sponsor. I just started sponsoring, taking meetings to detox, speaking at meetings, doing whatever I can do to help other people 
make it fulfills me and makes me better. I mean, it just does. It just doing does. podcast interviews, doing podcast that's, interviews. That's that, that, and so thank you so much. An amazing interview. If you had one thing that you wanted to share that you haven't shared yet with our podcast audience, what would that be? Um, there's a part in the big book called the promises and, um, it starts off. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed before we are halfway through, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. And I remember, um, so distinctly listening to that and thinking, I want to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Um, and I have that, I have found that, um, through this program, I have found a new freedom and a new happiness, so much so that I'm getting that tattooed on me today. Amazing. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's real. The promises are real. The, the promises, read the promises. Read them every day. Um, because, for me, the promises are this, the symbol of hope in this program. And there is hope. I mean, there just is. Uh, your story, for me, is really inspirational. And I relate to you in so many different ways. And I know our audience is going to relate on so many different levels. If you want to reach out to Patricia, email me at share at wayoutcast.com. I will absolutely make sure she gets your message. Patricia, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will. <laughs>